Well, if you were here with us last week, you know that we're planning to spend almost the entirety of this year seeking actively to enter into the story of the king, and the king, of course, is King Jesus. And you know as well that to do that, we're going back into the Old Testament, we're going back to these two books, which really are just one book, but they were broken into two scrolls, and so therefore now two books called First and Second Samuel, stories which record a transition. And it's a transition that's incredibly important. It records the transition of the people of God from what was essentially self-government. Here's the phrase that, that described them prior to the advent of the king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we saw the result of that, did we not? We talked about it last week. The result is chaos. And we don't just need to look into the Bible to figure that out. We can just look around town. We can look in our own lives. All right, so these books record a transition from everyone doing what was right in their own eyes to everyone learning now to do what is right in the eyes of their king, from self-government to the reign and rule of a king. And the reason we chose these books, again, is because this is the kind of transition, well, that you and I are supposed to be making. In other words, as we talked about last week, we need a king, and the king that we need is Jesus, and we don't just need Jesus to save us from our sin. We do need that, but we need him also to save us from ourselves, to save us from doing what is right in our own eyes, because, well, that leads to chaos, to reign and rule over us in love, in accordance with his greater wisdom, to lay hold of our lives and to make the matter for his glory forever. Guys, we need a king. The king that we need is Jesus. And here's the deal. When you have a king, then you serve the king. And so as we re-enter the story of the king this morning, here's the question that I want you to be asking yourself as we move through this text today. I want you to be asking, okay, who do I really serve? Do I really serve King Jesus or do I really serve myself? And the story today is going to help you figure it out because the writer of this story comes to us today with two different pictures. In the picture of Samuel, we get a guy who is faithfully serving the Lord God as his king. In the picture of Eli's, don't miss this, two horribly wicked sons, we get a picture of people who, well, faithfully serve themselves. And I use that language about them because, well, that's the language we're going to see. And I want you to hear on the front end that I realize your instinct is to run away from those guys. I mean, I've defined for you who the good and bad guys are right at the beginning, haven't I? And who do we all want to be? We all want to be the good guy. Don't forget to look at the picture of the bad guys. Because you may realize you look a whole lot more like them than you do the good guy. And listen, that is an awesome realization if what that realization then brings you to do is come to Jesus and begin to learn what it means to have him truly as your king. So last week as we gathered, we kicked off this study and we saw that the book of 1 Samuel begins with the story of this amazing, amazing woman named Hannah, who through the pain of her barrenness was brought to the place in her life where she finally, 100% all in, totally surrendered to God as her king, where she finally got to the place where she stopped praying the way that we all pray every single day, which essentially is this, dear God, please do for me what I really want you to do for me. Do for me, O Lord, what is right in my own eyes. We all pray that. Okay, she gave that up. 
And she started praying, dear God, do through me whatever it is that you want to do through me. In other words, do through me what's right in your eyes. And God then did. He healed her barrenness and he gave to himself a son named Samuel through her and her husband Elkanah. And here's what I mean by that. She made a vow, did she not? And she vowed to return that first child to the Lord. And that's exactly what we saw her do last week. We saw her take this precious little boy, her one and only son, and wean this precious little boy, which was a little bit later on in life than it is today. So he's like three to five years of age when he's fully weaned. And then she marched him back to Shiloh, this centralized place of worship for the nation of Israel in her day where the tabernacle or the temple was located. And she took her little boy and she entrusted him to the care of a man named Eli, who was the high priest of Israel. And I know if you don't know the story, you're probably thinking, well, great choice. I mean, like if you had to choose somebody, perfect, terrible choice. Eli was not a good and godly guy, even though he was the high priest. We saw evidence of that last week. You know, he saw Hannah in the temple there in Shiloh, and she's pouring out her soul to the Lord. It's her moment of greatest piety, perhaps, and he mistakes her piety for drunkenness. He mistakes this sacred moment for wickedness. And what does she say to him? She says, do not think of me as a worthless woman. No, no, no. Actually, what it says in the Hebrew is, do not think of me as a daughter of Belial, as a daughter of worthlessness. That's what he thought she was. But he learned better. He's a spiritually insensitive man. He's not the guy you would want to raise your son because, well, as we're going to see today, he already had two adult sons. And they were sons of worthlessness, as it turns out. But in fact, she didn't entrust him to the care of Eli only. What she was entrusting him to, or who, primarily, was God himself. And God indeed looks after this young man. And here's why she did that. You can imagine how hard that was. She did it because when you have a king, then you serve the king and she served the king. And the question that I want us to wrestle with as we look at the pictures, Samuel, Eli's sons, and evaluate ourselves by them is, all right, well, who do I serve really? We pick up our study this morning in 1 Samuel 2, beginning in verse 11, where the author of these stories says this. He says, Then Elkanah, that's the husband of Hannah, who having dropped off Samuel with Eli, did what? He went home to Ramah. So he left the boy behind, and here's the first picture of Samuel. The boy Samuel was ministering, or you could even say that he was serving the Lord. That's who Samuel serves, and he was doing this in the presence of Eli the priest. So there's our picture of Samuel, and now we're going to get a very very different picture. We read that now the sons of Eli, and I'm going to give this to you literally, were sons of worthlessness, which again is highly ironic when you think about it because Eli mistook Hannah as a daughter of worthlessness, and he had already raised what the text is telling us are two sons of worthlessness. He will realize that in this story. The sons of Eli were sons of worthlessness, and more than that, they did not even know the Lord, much less serve him, and that's true even though they were priests in Israel, 
And now notice how their self-serving faithlessness manifests itself in their lives because this is part of their picture. It says that the custom of the priests, meaning of Hophni and Phinehas, that's the names of Eli's two sons, and I think then also of Eli himself. Why? Because where this is going has to do with food. And Eli, in a future story, will be revealed to us as an enormous guy. And I don't think that the writer of the story is making fun of Eli. I don't think he's demeaning him for being big. I don't think he's saying he had a thyroid problem. I think what he's saying is that Eli was part of this. There is a gluttony involved here. And not just a gluttony, as we'll see. I think one of the things that this story comes to us and suggests to us in ways that are undeniable and I think incredibly clear is that if Christ is your king and he's governing over you, then what he governs over in you in large part are your passions. But if Christ is not your king and you're governing over you, then what will govern over you in large part are your passions. And they will lead you to chaos. They will lead you to addiction. They will lead you to slavery. We are ruled over by our passions. And it's clear that that was true for these guys. It says the custom of the priests, Eli and his two sons, with the people of Israel in those days, was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. And while the meat from the sacrifice was boiling, he would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. So the emphasis here is on the enormity of this fork. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot that the people were boiling their sacrifice in. And then all of the meat that this massive fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. And listen, the priests were to be fed by the food provided by the sacrifices of God's people who came to the temple or to the tabernacle to offer their sacrifices. But their portions were very specifically defined in the Bible, and they didn't include anything you could also yank up out of the pot with your big, huge fork. Get the idea? Ruled by their appetites. They're stealing from God's people. And we're told here that this is what they did at Shiloh, this place of worship, to all of the Israelites who came there to bring their sacrifices to the Lord, which incidentally was pretty much all of the Israelites. So Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, by association, are stealing from God's people, but not just from God's people. Because we then read, moreover, before the fat, and this is important, because within the context of this sacrificial system that they all were regularly a part of, the fatty portion, the fat was, that was the God, that was God's portion. It was specifically noted to be the Lord's portion. But now we read that, moreover, before the fat was burned as this sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, the priest's servant would come and he would say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw, because he digs it on the grill more than out of the pot, I guess. And listen to the objection. And if the man pleaded with him, that's what he's doing. 
It's spoken with a voice of devastation, like, I can't believe you would do this. It's horror in his voice. If he pleads with them and said, well, then let them burn the fat first. Good grief, that's the Lord's portion. Have you no respect? Well, as a matter of fact, no. If he pleaded with the priest and he would say, let them burn the fat first, and then you can take as much as you wish. Just don't profane the Lord's portion. He, this servant of the priest, would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Nice guys. So now they're not only stealing from God's people, they are stealing from God himself. And I want to read to you sort of a commentary on what God thinks when we steal from him. It's uncomfortable because we do it all the time. We don't think about it, but it happens. We take our time. We steal from him because it's ours, right? All of it. We take our talents and abilities and we steal them from him because they're ours, aren't they? They're for us. We take our treasure and we steal from him too. I mean, good grief, like the only thing God calls us out on robbing with specific language on is that. It says, thus the sin of the young men was very great, not mildly irritating, in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord, and thus the Lord himself with what? With contempt. My goodness. And so this story begins with a picture of faithful Samuel, but then immediately shifts to this picture of Eli's sons. These guys, who I think at the very least we could all agree, were by nature takers as opposed to givers. And here's what I mean by that. They didn't just occasionally take something that belonged to somebody else or belonged to the Lord and then, you know, came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and realized, oh, good, no, no I did the wrong thing, and God, I'm so sorry, and here's what I took from you, and, or I'm going to go make amends. with That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who habitually took from God and habitually took from others. That's part of their picture. And so I think as we're analyzing ourselves by these pictures, we've got to kind of stop and go, all right, well, you know, I mean, if I had to decide between these two statements, I am by nature a taker or I am by nature a giver, where do you land? Because we serve a king who gave away his life to purchase us, forsook heaven, with all of its benefits and all of its glories, entered into this world as a peasant and then gave away the only thing he had, his infinitely valuable, perfect life to purchase me and to purchase you. And not just us, but other people as well. And so here's the program. He then calls us to replicate that sacrifice in our lives, to give our lives away and not begrudgingly, but in joy to him and to other people. The sons of Eli, however, were takers. And more than that, the text here tells us that their taking manifested or demonstrated a contempt, a contempt for God's sacrifice and a contempt for God himself. And as I played that out in my mind, I'm thinking, my goodness, what an attitude of disdain or perhaps even an attitude of resentment toward the Lord and maybe also toward the kind of life that he had given to them because clearly they were excelling and exceeding the boundaries of that life. Were they not? And think about the kind of life they were given. 
You know, when all the tribes came up into the land and they gave away allotments of land to the various tribes, okay, the tribe, which is this priestly caste, they got nothing in terms of land. These guys were consigned, in a sense, to a life in which they didn't own a lot. They didn't, and in which they received and were dependent even for their food upon the continual sacrifice of God's people. They're taking food from God's people. Get the idea? But here was the Lord's thinking. The Lord's thinking was, my goodness, of all the different tribes, of the various inheritances in the promised land, if you will, that I am just laying out for these people, you get the most. Because I, God, am your portion. And the idea is that he is more than enough. But he's not more than enough for these guys. They're not happy with him. They're not satisfied with just him. And they're clearly not satisfied with the little bit or whatever the portion was in terms of food that they were allowed. And so they're resentful, I think, of the Lord, and they're resentful of the kind of life that the Lord ordained for them, a life that involves deprivation, not terribly unlike ours. And this is a kingship issue too. God ordains life for us. He ordains blessing and he ordains deprivations. And he is our king, is he not? And look, we can either resent those challenges, those deprivations, and him in the process, really, or we can embrace those deprivations and those challenges and him in the process as well. But here's what we can't do. We can't do both. I can embrace or resent. I can't embrace and resent. And he's bringing those things into my life and he brings those things into your life in part so that you and I can come to understand and really experience the fact that in Christ we actually have everything we need, that he is indeed more than enough to satisfy. So look at these pictures as we move through the story and understand that Samuel too could have been resentful, and far more so, by the way, than Hophni or Phinehas. Why? Well, as we'll see him in a minute, he's going to have a little linen ephod on, so he's going to be walking around looking, at least, like a little priest. He wasn't, but he will look like one. He will serve like one, and he will enjoy, we'll put that in quotes, the same deprivations that Hophni and Phinehas and Eli were consigned to as he's raised in their household, but he was deprived of far more. He was deprived of mother, of father, of brothers, of sisters. And then he was caused to be raised by this spiritually insensitive, gluttonous, faithless man named Eli and his two wicked sons in a temple that was so corrupt that all Israel was insulted. You can imagine that that was probably not the kind of crowd you wanted to run with. These were not the guys you wanted to be associated with. It's a tough deal. And yet there's a joy to this boy. There's a sense in which we see in this young man, and he rebukes all of us older men, you see, certainly within the context of the story, that his finds his satisfaction in the Lord, the Lord is more than enough for him, and his delight 
is to do what the Lord wants him to do. Samuel, verse 18, it says, we're back to his picture, was ministering before the Lord, which is to say that he was giving his life away in service to the king as opposed to himself. And he was doing that even as a boy, clothed with a linen ephod, which made him look like a little priest. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So she maintains a presence in his life through her clothing, really. And then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. He will curse his sons in a second, but he blesses them and say, may the Lord give you children by, the woman for, by this woman for the petition that she asked of the Lord for this precious boy that she then gave back to him. And if you know the story, she does go on to have more children, both sons and daughters. But in verse 22, we then read, now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how in addition to the way that they were stealing from God's people and stealing from God himself, now look what they do because it's all about the passions. It's all about the appetites. It's what governs us if we're not governed by the Lord. It says that they then lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So they converted the tabernacle of God sort of into their own personal brothel, if you will. And I know that you're probably thinking at this point, well, you know, as I look at this part of their picture, I think I'm free and clear on this one, Tom, because A, I'm not a priest, and B, I don't serve in the tabernacle of the Lord and sleep with the girls there. So, whoo, you know. But play this out with me for a second. The New Testament comes to us and it refers to all of God's people, not some portion of us, but all of us as a royal priesthood. Uh Uh-oh. It speaks of the priesthood of the believers and says that through faith in Jesus, we are all of us priests. Paul comes to us in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. And what does he say? He says, do you not know? So he's saying, listen, you need to know something. Do you not know, he says, that your body is a what? It's a temple, good grief, of the Holy Spirit Who is in you, he says, whom you have from God, and therefore you are not your own. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Do you know the context of that conversation? The verse immediately preceding it says, flee sexual immorality. Stunning. Jesus comes to us and says, oh, by the way, sexual immorality, not just something you do with your body, something also you do with your mind. If you even look upon another person with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart, which makes us all adulterers, all of us. So you can't convert your mind or body into, you know, a brothel, I guess, on the one hand, and then distance yourself too quickly from from these guys that you really do want to distance yourself from, on the other hand. And so then we read now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing that all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they stole from God and God's people, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And so he said to them, he will plead with them now, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Everyone knows it. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. And and now listen to his warning and take it to heart. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord... Who can intercede for him? 
And then we have the most unsettling statement in the entire story. It says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father Eli, and here's why. This is the unsettling part. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And so then now, we get another picture of Samuel. These guys have just been consigned to death. What is Samuel doing in the picture that we see? He's growing in life. They've just been given the disfavor of God. What is he growing in? Favor with God. They have been just told what they probably already knew, and that was that they had no favor with men, at least not in Israel. What what is Samuel gaining in? Favor with men. It says, now the boy Samuel, the contrasting picture, the other image to these guys, continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. They're very clear pictures, images that the writer is saying, here, look at these. Compare yourself to these and ask yourself, hey, am I a taker or a giver? I mean, really, seriously, like, am I? Because you serve a king who is altogether selfless. And he's calling you as you learn to walk and serve him to ever-increasing measures of selflessness. Is Christ enough for me or am I resentful if I'm honest? I feel like I'm getting the kind of life I don't deserve. I'm gravely disappointed with what it is that he's shelling out to me because he's not enough. I'm filled with discontent, and honestly, I'm just angry with the Lord over what He's chosen to do with me. Am I treating my mind and body like the temple of the Holy Spirit that it actually is, or, uncomfortable, but like my own personal brothel? Because the servant of the king not only knows that his mind and body belong to the Lord, he learns to turn it over to him. He grows in giving himself over mind and body to the Lord because when you have a king, then you serve the king. And of course, the question is, well then, who do I serve and who do you serve? Look at the pictures. If you did your personal worship for this week, then you kind of know how this story ends. It ends with the arrival of a prophet. We don't know his name, but we get his message. And he comes to Eli and it's not a friendly message, like Eli didn't want to hear this, but he did receive it. It's a message of judgment. It's a message of doom. He comes to Eli and says, okay, you're really old, right? Okay, there will never again be a person in your household old. Oops. You and your sons have grown really fat. Let me tell you how things are going to play out for your family. They're going to grow really thin from starvation. You and your sons have honored yourself above the Lord and before all of God's people. Okay, here's what's going to happen in your family. You will be dishonored and brought low by the Lord and before all of God's people. And the proof that Eli has given that everything this man has said will come to pass is the fact, and this guy tells him in advance, here's your proof, you will witness the death of both of your wicked sons by the sword on the same day. And when that happens, you'll know that everything else that I said to you was from the Lord as well. 
So that would be a bummer. But that's not all the prophet says, and I'm so thankful for that. Because he gets to the end of his oracle and he speaks not just of Samuel, but he speaks of Christ, who's not just a king, but who is also our priest, and who is himself the answer to the question of Eli that, look, all of us who look a lot like the sons of Eli, or even maybe a little, really need to find the answer for. And the question again was, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for them? And the message or the answer that this message and the message of the entire Bible gives to us is Jesus. His blood alone is sufficient to cover over all of our sin, no matter how grievous. All of our taking, all of our resenting, all of our profaning, all of it. And His advocacy alone is sufficient to mediate an eternal peace between us and God, such that we are His children and He is our Father, such that we are His subjects. And He, and this is really a good thing, is our King, because He not only saves us from our sin, He saves us from ourselves. So, my challenge to you guys as I wrap it up is this. First of all, it's to come to King Jesus and to bring all your sin to Him. There's an answer to the question, and the question is Christ. Run to the answer. And then secondly, it is to dedicate, or maybe in your case, to rededicate yourself to unreservedly live for Him. To serve Him, not your appetites. Because when you have a king, then you serve the king. So think that through today, okay? Who are you serving? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful um, that we have a king. That he is a humble king. Lord, that he is a gracious king. That he is a merciful king that He is a powerful King, that He is an inviting King and an approachable King. A King who didn't just stay in heaven, but who clothed Himself in our humanity and walked among us. A King who knows all of our weaknesses by experience and yet without sin. A King who laid down His life to purchase us and who gave us His Word and His Spirit and who gave us His people, each other. Lord, that we might come to know what it means to enjoy the freedoms of His reign and of His rule over our lives. God, let us come to know that. Do that for Your glory, we pray, and for the good of this, Your people, in Jesus' name. Amen.